verses 11 through 16. Paul says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. I'm sure I'm not the only one that had this experience growing up, but um, we didn't shop for shoes at uh, expensive places. We, we shopped at Payless. And if you know anything about Payless, they don't sell any of the name brand shoes. They always like look close enough, but weren't quite right. You know what I'm talking about? So in, instead of Nikes, you had to wear like Spaldings. And uh, so you get judged on the playground uh, about what you did or didn't have. And uh, I remember... Uh, getting my first pair of Nikes, and uh, I, I think um, we might, they might have been knockoffs anyway. I think I got them in, like, uh, California at, like, a flea market or something. My mom <laughs> bought them for me. And, uh, and so I, I remember sporting those things and feeling like I could run faster and jump higher, and everybody else knew it, only because I had the swoosh instead of the regular XJ 900s that I normally had to wear and uh, feel like I couldn't do enough. So um, I, I get this... Uh, sense that uh, we know what it is to sort of judge somebody from the outside based on some certain sign that they do or do not have. And maybe you think if somebody, now today, maybe you think if somebody had the right brand on their clothes or the right brand on their shoes or something like that, you would be able to think that maybe they either have money, but before that, maybe when you're a little bit more elementary about it, you think, well, maybe that person's really good at sports. You like sort of prejudge them based on some like external sign, right? And uh, we're going to talk about that this morning as we get to the heart of Acts, which it truly is the heart of Acts. It's the middle of the book. And so this morning, um, we're going to be talking about the false flags of flesh, the false flags of flesh. And so to get there, uh, I'm just going to remind you where we're at last week so that the, the jog forward makes sense. Paul introduced to us the problem that we're going to have to enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations, through many persecutions, many trials. And he says we collectively will have to do this together. That's his last exhortation to the churches as they're going back through and they're confirming the ministry of the word and so the reality of these persecutions are multifaceted. They're both physical and uh, spiritual and emotional. And so in 2 Corinthians, as Paul makes a list of the persecutions that he endured, some of them we are, have already walked through and some of them are yet to come. But I want to read this um, for you out of uh, 2 Corinthians, starting in uh, verse 18 of chapter 11. Let me rewind here so we can be all on the same page. 
He says, since many uh, boast according to the flesh, can you help me with that? Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes a slave of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or you put on an air, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Okay, so he starts out talking about uh, the fact that uh, these Corinthians are respecting people based on, a, uh, based on an outward perception of who they are, and they're affording them an extra level that Paul did not take advantage of. And so he's going to address this problem in verse 21. He says, to my shame, I say we were too weak for that. And so he's, he's speaking sarcastically here, and he says, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. He says that parenthetically so that you know he's not being serious. I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am ta- I'm talking like a madman. Again, he inserts that parenthetically. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers. Now note this, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. Important. In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger, thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul makes this list of sufferings. He starts out talking about the problem that they're respecting the flesh of these people. There's something to be, uh, in their minds, admired about these people that they're calling apostles. And so Paul goes through the check marks that, that these people are looking at the external appearance of these so-called apostles, and giving them this level of respect. So Paul addresses all those. He says, do they have these qualifications? I have those too. Now, I didn't make a point of saying those because it says those things don't matter. So then he transitions from these outward signs to the things that really do matter. And so he begins to talk about all of the tribulations that he had experienced and all of the dangers that he had come upon. Come upon. And so as, as Paul's list points out um, for us is just a, a confirmation of what we already read, that the external measure of things is not what is important. And among the list of the physical sufferings, the physical trials, the marks that Paul bears, he points out a, a special couple of dangers. He says, I was in danger from false brothers. I was in danger from my own people, that's the Jews, and from the Gentiles. These tribulations and sufferings are, are coming both as physical persecution, but also as hate against the word of God and for those who would follow the word of God. I remind you, last week we read through this scripture in 2 Timothy, it says, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it's not just the spread of the gospel, but for anybody that holds fast to that word will also endure persecution. And so every false believer and every false belief has to originate somewhere. It originates in some, some thought, some teaching, which means it must come from a teacher. And so every false idea has at its heart a belief which kills, which is faith in the flesh, a confidence in the flesh. The root of most, if not all, false teaching is a false confidence, a false belief in the flesh. 
And so these, those, those kind of principles that come out, the kind of teaching, the kind of beliefs that come from a false faith in the flesh are the kind of things that rely on the goodness of man, the wisdom of man, the ability of man. All of those things you can throw in the same category as, as confidence in the flesh. And so when these things begin to manifest, they represent themselves and they persecute against something besides that. So the alternative to that is confidence in something else, faith in something else, not myself or not what I can do or what I can uh, externalize, but in something different. So Acts 15 lies at literally this, pretty much the center of the book of, of Acts, right? It, it represents the climax of um, the story of the fledgling church. And besides this scripture, as you, you're a Gentile, if you don't know that, besides this scripture as a Gentile, there may not be a more important part of all of the New Testament. Because here in this is, is the conflict between grace the conflict between the new covenant and the old covenant. And this crisis has to be resolved. And thank, thankfully, on our half, we, 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 it does get resolved in a way that says it's not about what we can do in the flesh. And so in, in spite of these uh, ideas that are floating out there and the way that we sort of think about things without being checked, um, it's a very simple message this morning. It's, it's actually ridiculously simple. And if I was going to lay out the concepts as Acts, as Acts 15 will present them, I'd want to start with sort of the end of this chapter, but I don't get that benefit. But I think what happens, because of the way that it's presented, it just kind of comes on the people at the point where this crisis is presented and this demand for the flesh to be the sign, it, it sort of... Uh, takes them by surprise, and, and as we're teaching today, I want it to take you by surprise and sort of expose any of those notions that you might have in your own heart. And so the great danger to your soul is false teaching. The great danger to your soul is false teaching, but it's not false teaching that's like a totally different, obvious kind of lie. It's the false teaching that's so close or sounds so good or sounds so spiritual or so righteous that it makes you want to believe that that could be the right way. And that's exactly what is happening in Acts 15. And so we're going to sort it out this morning. We'll go through, uh, I believe it's verse 11. Before we get to the text, let me pray. And um, we'll ask the Lord to help us in this. Father, I pray this morning for your help as we walk through this crucial portion of your word. Thank you for your providence and your sovereignty in, in making things just as you intend them to be and bringing forth the truth through crisis so that we would rest not on our own doing, our own work, our own ability, but that we would, in the end, totally rest in grace. So, Father, I just ask that you would help me to speak only what is good and true and help all of us to receive what it is that you would say, that you would breathe life into these words, that they would breathe life into us. Father, equip us with what we do not have. Challenge us where we need to be challenged and do the work that only you can do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Acts 15. Are you ready? Here we go. Now, they, what's happened is just Acts 14, they, Paul and Barnabas have traveled back through their first missionary journey, and they wound up at home base, which is Antioch, Syria. 
And so it says they stayed there no little time. So we don't know how long this time is, but this is where they're at. They're just sort of at home base. And while they're there, this is what happens. It says some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, just real quick, the, the word there that some brothers came down and they were teaching is the idea of re- repetitive teaching. They continued to teach. They taught this and they continued to teach it. So what they're saying is effectively this. Paul, everything that you've done in this church here is really illegitimate because, remember, Antioch is the place where the first kind of just true Gentile church. And they, then this whole missionary journey where they've been declaring the truth, not just to to Jews, but also to Gentiles, it would say, everything that you've done so far is worthless. It's pointless. And so what they're effectively denying here is that there was really any true salvation uh, by the the gospel at the hands of Paul and Barnabas. And so verse 2 says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that means it was a major dust up. Maybe, Maybe blows were thrown. We don't know. There was a large ascension and a debate with them. And Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who uh, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. Here's what you need to get from this. This was a hill to die on. This this is, uh, at the heart of it is just, what is the gospel? Is the gospel something more than what was being declared uh, as these new brothers are, that are coming in are declaring, or is it what Paul has already been teaching? And so this is going to get sorted out. So real quick, just I want to um, help you see what's going on in the text. Uh, so the year uh, is loose. We don't know for sure, for sure. But most of this has to happen before 50 because we know where people died and who was ruling where and what at what time. And so where Paul ends up being in jail and so on and so forth. So as we've been walking through the scripture on the missionary journey and the Gentiles being saved, etc., you can see that Acts overlays what Paul begins to talk to the Galatians about in his letter to the Galatians. Remember, Galatians isn't a place, it's a region. It's everywhere that Paul just was. It's a whole people group that were all part of Galatia as a region. And so if you want to jot that down and just read through Galatians chapter 1 and 2, it will be basically a, a recounting of everything that's happened in Acts 9 up to now Acts 15. And so the important part of this, what we're going to get to today, is starting in Acts 15, verses 1 and 2, which is where these false teachers arrive. There's no small dissension among them. And then if you read Galatians chapter 2, we find out that at some point, Peter comes to Antioch. And Paul says, I had to confront Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Because what Peter had been doing was that he was, uh, he was withdrawing from the Gentiles. And he was uh, afraid of the circumcision party or those that were saying, hey, these, these guys aren't following the laws, and so we can't fellowship with them. And so Paul basically rebukes Peter. He says he stood condemned. And so the question is, when does that happen? And, and why does it matter? Well, because what's about to get sorted out in the rest of Acts 15 matters dearly to when Peter himself got sorted out. And so there's only two times where this could have happened. It's either that as Paul and Barnabas took their original gift way back, I think it was in, in chapter 12, and they took the gift from the church of Antioch up uh, because there was a famine in the land. And perhaps at that point, that's where um, Peter is sort of acting uh, uh, two-faced. And it says even Barnabas got carried away in this. So it's possible that happened then. It's also possible that as Peter escaped jail, he fled down to Antioch 
hearing that there was revival there, and he had stayed there sometime, but he's not mentioned in the text, and that among this time, Peter's also there. But this is all going to get sorted out, and so that happens. And what happens after verse 2 of Acts 15 is that Paul pens the, the letter to the Galatians. So on the way, traveling to this council, we get the whole book of Galatians. And so you can just insert the entire letter to the Galatians right there in that moment. And this is important to the flow of thought because Paul declares clearly to the Galatians what will come as a result of Acts 15. And I think uh, that's important because what that could have done was two things. It could have fractured the church. It could have been Paul's version of how to be saved versus what the Jerusalem church decides is the way to be saved. And the fact that God was providential over all of this and, and, and brought everyone to unity is no small thing. So in Acts, uh, uh, back in 15, going on to verse 3, it says this, So being on their way, they, they were sent on their way by the church. They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. The, the word there that they were sent also has the idea that they were accompanied, at least part of the way, with some of the believers from Antioch. So it's like they have a case study right here. And so they're reporting all that God has done among the Gentiles. And look, we, we have some Gentiles here with us from the church in Antioch. And so they're sort of going back through, but it specifically mentions Phoenicia and Samaria because these would have been areas where there were still um, Jewish converts or proselytes, people that really obeyed the law or were sort of halfway obeying the law. That's the Samaritans. And so this, this true disconnect of this unique people in the, the Gentiles is, is, uh, is sort of a unique animal that they're kind of bringing through these other places that have already been affirmed or confirmed that they're part of the salvation and part of the church. And it says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they, were declare, and they declared all that God had done with them. So they're received, they're welcomed, and they're going to report what's, what's been going on. But um, we find out later that um, as Paul's talking about this in Galatians, that these people that came down and were teaching this, were, they, they had come from Judea, from Jerusalem. And so they had come and they were teaching this in Antioch. And um, it says that they were, they were saying they were sent, but, but later on James says that he, um, he did not send these people out. And so they're really going to the source, the source of where did this false teaching originate? Where's this new teaching coming from? And it says some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up, and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So there it is. So they say, we don't care what it is that you're saying happened. The party of the Pharisees, of whom Paul was one, right? He said, they say, it's, it's, not, it's not true. They cannot be saved unless they're first circumcised. And they must also then in doing, keeping the law of Moses. And so Paul and Barnabas are sent as representatives of the church, but the, but the whole region of Galatia, if you think about it this way, is at stake. Their whole however many years that they've been doing this missionary journey, all of the pain and suffering that Paul had endured, maybe dying once, right, and, and going to heaven briefly, he's, this is all being negated. They're saying it, it wasn't right. It wasn't true. And so here's what happens. The gospel, the true gospel, divides not just the, the, the world from those who believe in the church, but it also divides the church itself. Some divisions in the church are, are necessary. Some divisions in the church are right. Now, some of them are bad. Some of them, and they're bad when they are driven in the flesh or driven in selfishness. But other times, distinctions are necessary. 
And distinctions lead to divisions and vice versa. And so the church is meant to be a reflection of the union that we have with Christ. But what it comes down to is this. Is the distinction being made a distinction in the flesh or is it a distinction that's made by God? And that's a pretty simple um, rule that you can use to find out if a division in a church is right or wrong. Is it a division that comes from a distinction made by man in the flesh or is it a distinction made by God about what's true, what's, what's true and false, what is right and wrong? And so if you notice, the point of attack is circumcision, the, the sign in the flesh itself. This is what is being pointed to as the problem. It's, it's the initial point where somebody must pass through or enter through to even be saved. And this is not a coincidence that this is something that happens in the what? The flesh. It's a physical act. Now, it's something that God commanded people to observe. In the old covenant, it was given to them as something to observe as a sign of obedience, a sign of belonging in the covenant. But it's not, it's not the thing itself. It's not the substance. It's a sign. And so what they're doing here is they're t- taking the sign and they're making it the substance. It's a sign of what God can do and will do and has done for those that have faith. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, as Moses is telling the people to follow all the law, that's what Deuteronomy is. It's a reciting of the law. Follow the law, follow the law, follow the law. But the end point of that is this. And in the end, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So we know that all of the law is summed up in that. Love the Lord your God with all that you are and your neighbor as yourself. That's the totality of the law. And what Deuteronomy 36 says is that God will circumcise your heart to make that possible. There's only one person that can circumcise your heart, God. Now he said, make a, make a circumcision in your flesh to show that this spiritual truth is there. But the spiritual surgery on the heart is something that only God can accomplish. So our faith is in grace, being grace. Our faith is in grace, being grace. It it has to be grace or it's something else entirely. If anything is required to receive grace, then it ceases to be grace. If anything is put as a prerequisite to get to grace, it's not grace anymore because you've you've earned it. You've merited it. There's a condition on, on it to receive grace and therefore it ceases to be what it is, which is grace. And that's necessary to be saved. And so here's what happens. They come, they say, it had to be circumcised, and the apostles and the elders are gathered together to consider this matter. Who's right in this? Is it the, the, the Pharisees and their assertions that they need to be circumcised and follow the law according to Moses? Or is there something else? And this is after there had been much debate. Peter stood up, and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice. God made a distinction. God showed his hand. God made a choice among you or in their midst. Now, we, uh, the tendency is to read this. I put that parenthetically as God made a choice among you about me. That's not what he's saying. He said God made a choice while we were all together about what he wanted. Okay, so while we were all together, God made a choice that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So he's going back to the Gentile Pentecost at Cornelius' house in Acts 10, where, remember, Paul, or Peter has this vision three times. 
And the point of the vision is this. What God has said is clean, do not say is unclean. Peter's like, got it. Don't got it. Can you go with that again? Right? So three times, confirmed. Okay? If I say it's clean, don't call it unclean. Got it. Okay, go to the Gentiles. And what happens is, as he's declaring the word, before he even finishes the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls. Why? Because it's God's primary mover. God's the one that chose this. And so he confirms, yes, I'm calling these people clean with the sign of the Holy Spirit. An important word. The sign of the Holy Spirit was given just as he did to us. So he made what? No distinction. So God exercised his own prerogative in giving the Holy Spirit and made no distinction because he gave the Holy Spirit before there was any circumcision at play, before there was any law of Moses proclaimed. So because God did this before any of that other stuff happened, it's God saying there is no prerequisite. You can't put anything in front of grace. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? He says God has effectively done this. He's effectively spoken for himself. He's given a a clear sign of what he wanted. And now you're testing him by asking, did you really mean? Is that really what you meant? And that's effectively what they're doing when they're saying, no, you need to be circumcised still. So why are you trying to place a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And I think it's important that um, Peter used the word disciples of those that are being referred to in the sense that he already accepts them. Peter does not argue from logic. He did not argue from personal experience or even personal conviction. He went right to what did God say and what did God do? What did God say? He, he said, don't call what, is, what I've said uh, clean, unclean. So I can't do that. And what actually happened? Well, he sent his spirit. That's not something I control. So because he did that, this is where Paul rests his case. Or Peter, I'm sorry, too many P names. This is where Peter rests his case. He doesn't even point to the effectiveness of Paul's ministry. He doesn't say, but look at all of the converts. Look at what, look, look how many people we've gotten. He goes to the word of God and the actions of God that are rest in the character of God and the promises of God. All the way back in Deuteronomy. I will circumcise your hearts so that the law is fulfilled. I'll circumcise your heart so that the law is fulfilled. And that happens by the Holy Spirit. So the question is, why would you test God in this? Why would you disbelieve what God has done or is doing? And this is a good question. Peter's final confidence rests in this last word. We believe that we will be saved through the grace not through the law, not through the sign. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's an inversion from how you might expect that to be presented. You might think that he would say, they'll be, uh, they'll be saved just as we are. They're saved just as we are, but he puts the Jews in the seat of needing to receive the same thing that they're saved by. He's saying, we will be saved just as uh, they are. He's putting the, the Jews in the need of grace as well. So he's, he's negating the fact that they could claim that at any point were they saving themselves by the sign or by the law. So this conflict between grace and law is something we will examine more next week. But his, his final confidence rests in faith that comes from grace that we need. And if there's any requirement to get to grace, it's not grace anymore because you've merited it. 
make any requirement, make any distinction, to have any prerequisite before it is to put that as the standard. And if that's the standard, then you begin to look to that thing as the question, are you saved? Well, I don't know. Are you circumcised? So do you see that now your faith is in something else besides the grace and besides the gospel that's been declared? Because you're now looking to something physical. You're looking to some, some sort of externalized flag that shows that you're saved. Do not look at yourself for confirmation. This is, people, people run around with false confidence and false doubt because of this. Because like the Sneetches, we're navel-gazing. Okay? What's on my belly? What, what do I have that shows that I've gone through the correct steps and I'm in the pool? I'm part of the in crowd, and so I know that I'm good. And I can look at you and see what's on your belly and make sure that you're good too. That's what is happening in this moment. They want to know, are you circumcised? Because you've got to be circumcised, otherwise that's not acceptable. And that's the yoke that they're putting on them. And he says, we haven't even been able to carry that. Because you can have a sign that doesn't mean anything. You can go through the $3 tunnel and get a star on your belly. Right? And it doesn't make you different than you were before. So you could be a false circumcised part of the covenant community. But do you really belong? And that is the question that can't be answered on, on the externals. If God made no distinction, importantly, on the front end, neither can or should we. That's, that's essentially the heart of grace. If God makes no distinction on the front end about who can and cannot be saved, we cannot either. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable among many of the parables in that chapter. The parable of the sower is about the grounds. And then in uh, verse 24, he tells another, another parable uh, about agriculture and about seed. So here the parable of what's called the wheat and the tares or the parable of the weeds. It says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and he went away. So when the plants came up and they bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then, then do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, Jesus helpfully interprets this parable for us in verse 36. So he says, then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him and asked, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out uh, of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine like the sun in the king, kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, let him hear. There's something surprising in this parable. 
And then there's something like really astonishing about the parable. The surprising thing in the parable is this, that when the, the, the wheat and the weeds come up together and it's recognized what's happening, that there's some, some stuff in the field that we didn't sow, some stuff that we didn't want in the field, and they ask, should we go get that out? There's a little bit of surprise that it's like, no, let it grow. You'd think that you'd want a pure field. You'd want to have the, the, just the grain out in the field, but there's, uh, there's a reason why. He says, lest in uprooting the, weed, the weeds, you pull up the wheat too. Now, that's the sort of surprising aspect of it. But when you think about it, the astonishing aspect of it is this, that it's in the unfruitfulness of both that allows them to be mixed up one for another. Let me say that differently. At the beginning, when they're just sprouting up, no one knows what's what. They all look the same. It's only when they begin to produce fruit after their kind, when they begin to flower and and whatever grain does. I'm sorry, I'm not a farmer, right? Whatever it does and begins to produce what it is, that's when it's recognized. And by then, it's not too late. He doesn't say you might accidentally get the wrong thing. He says, if you try to uproot it, you might uproot some of the good with the bad. And so he doesn't want that to happen. Now, why is that important for us? Because it's the unfruitful aspect of it that characterizes both in the beginning. And we can't make that kind of measurement externally at the beginning, you don't know what level of maturity someone else in the kingdom is at. They may just be that little stocking grain, right? It's when they begin to produce fruit after their kind that we can identify what's what. But even then, it's not our job to uproot them, okay? Now, this is going somewhere. Because tears have a purpose, and so does grain. Grain can be mushed up and used to make bread and feed and nourish and all that. That's good. It can also fall to the ground as a kernel and go into and reseed and grow new wheat, right? So it reproduces after its kind. Weeds don't do anything except for reproduce after their kind, okay? And they don't do anything useful. Now, we had a discussion this last week about whether or not it's okay to eat dandelions. And so, you know, whatever. <laughs> I once convinced you all that the Hebrew word for um, weeds is coconut, and that's not true. But let you know how I feel about coconut. Okay, so here's the thing. Um, The planting was intentional by the Son of Man, and the planting was intentional by the enemy, right? And they bring up both after their kind. And so here's what happens. As these things manifest themselves, as they begin to fruit and sprout, so they can be seen for what they are, there's two ways that external things go wrong. There's false flags, and there's friendly fire, okay? And we're talking about the false flags of the flesh this morning. The false flags are these. We begin to see what characterizes grain, what characterizes good fruit. And even though we don't have that in ourselves, we fake it. We fake it to make it. And so you put out the false flag, not knowing why, not having the motivation. And so you sort of, by by your bootstraps or by the white-knuckled, grit and bear it kind of thing, you just try to make do with what you know. And so it's it's the, the pressure of the environment that you're in as all these other Wheat seems to just so effortlessly sprout forth this grain that you don't have and for whatever reason. And so you begin to fake those kinds of things. Oh, I need, I need a star on my belly to be like everyone else. And so you go and surreptitiously get that star. And so there's this sort of external conformity. And that often happens, now bringing this whole thing together, that often happens for us by looking at the law 
the requirements of the law. Be good, not bad. Do this, not that. And these are the kinds of false flags we begin to to paper ourselves with so that we look the right way to other people. And so we begin to add the law onto ourselves so that we might have this sort of external conformity so that if people could look at us and know what we are, they'd say, oh, I conclude from what you're doing, you must be a Christian. So external conformity to the law does not bring righteousness, though. But we make those kind of measurements. Well, I mean, good Christians shouldn't go to R-rated movies or they shouldn't drink alcohol or whatever your line is in the sand, you begin to think that that's the flag that you need to have and carry. There's also the problem of friendly fire, where with those kinds of measurements, those kind of filters on the world, we begin to look at other people's and start looking to see if they have the star that we think is most important. And then we say whether they're in or out. This is the problem of the first question. Should we tear the weeds out? Should we go into the field and get rid of these fools that we think are, are not doing what they should do? No. <laughs> On account of several things. One is you're not precise enough to find the line between soul and spirit, which is what the Word of God does and what only God himself can do. Your own standard, your own filter, your own litmus test is not a good measurement. And here's what the whole thing does. It says there's requisite There's a prerequisite. There's some filter before grace. Here's the greatest, easiest illustration you can have for whether or not there should be something to get to grace. Do you get well before you go to the hospital? Do you need to make yourself better before you can get into the hospital? We only let healthy people in here, right? No. So it's the same thing when we try to put something before grace. In our approval, does not come from what other people measure about us. Our approval only comes from God. So what does this teaching, though, look like today? Because remember, every false belief comes from some sort of false teaching and from a false teacher. Well, there are pastors out there that tell people they need to have some certain sign. You need to manifest this sign before I know that you're saved. Have you spoken in tongues? Because if not, you're not saved. Oh, you were, you were baptized by sprinkling? It's only immersion, right? That wasn't, you weren't wet enough. Sorry, right? Like there's, there's these teachings that are out there and these people preach a message that says there's, it's grace plus something else or grace, you can't get to it until you cross through this certain barrier. And it's the certain barrier that I think is most important. And the problem with that is not just in general that it's, it's not tempting on its own but it's tempting when it comes from that source, when it's coming from religious people, when it's coming from somebody that's spiritual who you sort of want to inherently trust, which is what's happened here. They come down from, if you want to say it this way, the mother church in Jerusalem. These, these guys are Pharisees. I mean, they had it together before we even knew who Jesus was. And so like, maybe we should listen to what it is they have to say. And so the authority level that they bring down with them causes them this to be an uh, a tempting teaching, even though it's not really tempting if you think about it, right? you got to be circumcised. Mm. Like if that was on the front end, maybe more people wouldn't have been converted, right? And so, guys, that's, a, that's funny if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, so false teachers and false teaching is especially insidious when it comes from an authoritative source or somebody that we want to trust. But these, these false teachers also serve a purpose. 
Remember, I said some distinctions are necessary. Some divisions do something. And they do purify the church. They reveal who is genuine and who is not. John says they, uh, that the people that go out from us just only prove that they were never really of us. In that Corinthians passage where uh, I read last week before communion, it was talking about the fact that there was divisions in the church. And he said the reason why these divisions must exist is so that we can see who's, who's true and who isn't. And that's not defined by, again, some sort of external fleshly thing. It's only defined by what God says is true and what is not true. So what does God say is true, and how should we make that kind of distinction? Or should we just sort of ignore it and just say, well, the field is going to be mixed, and so we ought not to do anything? Well, Jesus says that we should be aware, that the church ought to be vigilant about these kinds of things. He says when, when uh, false teachers comes in, come in, they'll be dressed like sheep, and they'll be, uh, yeah, they'll be dressed like sheep, but they're actually inwardly wolves, and they'll devour the flock. And so the only way to recognize these things is, is, is by their fruit, he says. And then he, he says it in both, uh, what is it, Matthew 7 and Luke 6. He, he makes the same teaching and he makes the same assertion. You will recognize them by their fruit. The same thing that happens in the parable. Once the thing comes to fruition, once a weed shows that it's weed, and once a, a, a grain shows that it's grain, that's when you know who's who. That's when you know what's what. And he says it's impossible for something to produce fruit other than its own kind, meaning a weed can't produce grain and a grain will not produce weeds. It must. It is the law of DNA and it's the law of God, right? Things produce after their own kind. So here's sort of the, the, the question that's like floating out there. It's the elephant in the room. So if we're, we're supposed to recognize things by their fruit and maybe we're not supposed to uproot those things, but we're also not supposed to navel-gaze. Like, how do those things get together? Like, how, how do we make those problems resolve? Well, here, here's the question that we started with this morning. Like, if you try to look at somebody else and want to know whether or not they're a Christian, and you look at some, some measurement, or you think about yourself, and you say, well, how do I know I'm in or out, right? And so those kind of distinctions in, internally expose for you what your assumptions already are, what, what filter you already have in place. So the question is, are you then looking at, what are you looking to to know whether or not you're in or not? And the question or the objection is, is certainly this. Well, I mean, how do we know that people aren't just saying that they're converted or that, that they have grace and then they're just doing whatever they want and acting crazy? And how do we know like if they're genuine or not? And there's, there's, a good, there's, a, there's a good intuition there. There's, there's, a, there's a want to to defend grace, to defend, if you will, God's honor, right, in, in, in offering salvation. But the, the problem is we begin to get too diligent about fruit checking, right? We're, we're so worried about what other people are producing or what we're producing to know whether or not they're saved. And we're worried if they're they're potentially abusing grace. We're worried that they're going to abuse grace. That's sort of the objection. What about the abuse of grace? But the truth is this. Grace cannot be abused. That is a, it's a provocative statement, but it's a, it's a rock-hard truth. You, you, cannot, you cannot abuse grace. Why? Because the law remains that those who have genuinely received grace will produce after their kind. 
It, it must be. So the question of whether or not somebody is experiencing a battle with sin, a battle with the flesh, like we can't sort that out, but they will produce after their own kind. Grace cannot be abused because someone that is a genuine recipient of grace, as Jesus gives it to them, they have a new heart, which is what the promise was in Deuteronomy 30. I will give you a new heart, and out of that heart you will follow the laws. Sometimes people are struggling in the flesh, and sometimes they're just an unredeemed sinner doing what sinners do, namely sin, right? And so people are doing what they are doing after their own kind, but it's not our job to identify that on the front end. It is our job to know for ourselves what it is that we're trusting in. What, what are you trusting in? When, when, are you somebody that's looking down at yourself for confidence to know whether or not you're in? If you look there, you'll never have assurance. Why? Because you, just like all of us, are a mixed bag. Sometimes you get it right, sometimes you blow it big, and then follow that up by blowing it big. And then, oh yeah, another mistake on top of that. And if you look to that for your assurance on whether or not you have grace, you'll never have it. You'll always be wondering. So why would you, if you know that's you, you can't put that at measurement on other people, could you? You would be just as wrong about them. Guilt, shame, condemnation, only, only are evacuated when our, when our fixed fixation, which flag are we going to look at? Is it on us or is it something else? And it's something else. It's in the fact that all that's needed for you to be in grace has already been accomplished. That's already done. And so if somebody says, how do I know that I'm in? Is it something I, I've done or not done? It's, it has nothing to do with you. And it has everything to do with Jesus has everything to do with what Jesus already accomplished. So the question is, are you trusting in that declaration of what Jesus has done on your behalf? That it's not going to be my righteousness that gets us through. It's not going to be my ability to follow the law. It's not going to be anything that I can do. It has to be something else. So your faith has to be in something other than you. John 6, 63. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. Being birthed anew in the Spirit is the only thing that is grace, that gives life. It says the flesh is no help. Zero. Can't get anything out of it. Squeeze it all you want. There's no life to be had by wringing the flesh. You won't find it there, not by looking at it, not by hoping in it. So the challenge is this. If you struggle with condemnation, shame, doubt, frustration, uncertainty, what are you looking at? Are you trying to find that assurance in your own heart about, well, if God was really in me, I'd be doing something better than this. I wouldn't sin so much. Well, that struggle's good, but you won't find the assurance of your salvation in you. You will only find it in grace because that's the only way you can be saved, by grace. Not, it's not, grace does not turbocharge the law to allow you to keep it perfectly. It says, because you cannot, you have grace. And so the root of this problem comes by way of people in the world, people in authoritative sources coming and saying, yeah, but you really should look like this. Oh, really, really, you need this, Mark. Really, you need, and that's telling you to, to take your eyes off of Christ and to put your eyes on yourself. 
And, uh, and that's the wrong place to look.